Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 14. Last week, we closed out with chapter 13. I think you could probably see now how that's probably one of the most profound chapters uh, in all of the Bible, certainly within the book of Proverbs. And we looked at one of the most powerful and probably one of the deepest passages in all the Bible, something that most people never consider. Most preachers never preach on it. And uh, most couples, most marriages, most families never understand it either. The importance of a family ministering and growing together and God's structure to reach the world. Understanding, as we talked about last week, the concept of the third generation of that family. How that in God's mind, the thing's not complete as far as the ministry and as far as what God is establishing with that family till you get to the third generation. Now today we'll begin to look at chapter 14. And again, uh, we'll build a a set of principles that uh, we can take uh, and put into our lives that uh, uh, help us to grow and to be everything that God wants us to be. Uh, Verse 1 and 2, that's about all the farther we're going to get today. And uh, it says, Every wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. He that walketh in his uprightness feareth the Lord, but he that is perverse in his ways despiseth him. Delano, would you stand up and pray for me this morning, brother, as we go to the Word of God to preach it? Um, Thank you, Lord, for uh, for Bob and for your Word and and, um, for your son. Lord, I just pray that we can uh, examine ourselves uh, as Bob preaches this morning and just... uh, let us just get to that place like the like the song we sang, just lay everything on the altar before you. And just, um, Lord, just, just let your Holy Spirit speak to, it, to our hearts and let us make those changes we need to make in our lives. And uh, I love you in Jesus Christ's name. I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, son. Thank you very much. Now, we know that from our past studies that the book of Proverbs is a book that is built around contrast. And we know that contrast is one of the most powerful ways to learn your Bible. number of ways to do it, but contrast is one of the central things that God uses to teach us the Word of God. And in this book, the book of Proverbs, with its numerous contrasts, which we've pointed out as we've come through, you'll find a contrast of two different women. And the verse today is about a wise woman and how she builds her house. And uh, you'll find in the book of Proverbs a good woman, and a bad woman. And we know that fundamentally she will represent the two lines of religion in the world and throughout the Bible. One will be false and one will be true. The Bible says in James chapter 1 verse 27 that pure religion is undefiled before God. And it has a purpose. And the father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows and the affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And along with that, God's wisdom in the Bible, the book of Proverbs, will always be like, uh, likened to a female. You'll find where wisdom is likened to a she, where wisdom is likened to a her. Some people ask that, they wonder about that, and that's probably one of the many questions that I get over and over again when somebody starts to read the book of Proverbs or the whole Bible, uh, why wisdom is personified as a, as a she or as a her. And of course, the reason for that is that from a doctrinal aspect, uh, that wisdom is personified in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel, which is God's wife. And in the New Testament, wisdom is personified through the bride of Christ, which is the church. So you'll find it in that aspect. 
And when you understand how God uses it, you'll see some great truths about yourself and what God is doing and really what he wants to do. And today I want to examine what he says in verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, uh, and a couple of different aspects. First of all, we want to look at it historically. That's the easy one. This is Solomon's wife. And we, she's talked about in the book of Song of Solomon. She's referenced in Proverbs chapter 31, and she is a literal woman that he's talking about here. But we want to focus on the next two. Inspirationally, this will be any good woman that gets saved and, and does what's right with her family, her house. Doctrinally, it'll be you and me as the church, the bride of Christ. And we build our house, our temple, our body for him. And uh, yet, it's a great model for understanding your marriage. Uh, we've talked about the role of the woman in marriage and, and how important she is and all of that. This goes right along with that for you men out there who want to get some insight into things like that. You know, I, I think it's, it's, I've observed this all of my life, and I'm sure you have too. Men and women have always been talked about in a humorous way. Uh, some people don't like that. Uh, I myself always enjoy a good laugh about myself. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, my closest friends are the ones that I can kid about things, and they certainly kid about me with things. Uh, my family does it all the time. I think a person who can't laugh at themselves will have some issues in life. They'll start to take themselves way too seriously. I never get upset when somebody makes a joke about something I do or I say, because I know I can really say some dumb things and do some stupid things. I mean, uh, to me, there's a value in it. And my kids give me a tough time all the time, and I, I give them a tough time all the time. Uh, just ask them sometime about uh, who Simon is. That's a family joke. Ask them sometime about the water bottle down at Disney World in the hotel. That's another joke within our family. But I get it on them. I get it on them. I know my, 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 my youngest daughter, Jamie, is the worst driver on the planet. <laughs> She's the only girl that can go around a corner going into her cul-de-sac and blow both tires out on the same side. <laughs> There's a little corner there of a manhole that she just didn't miss, and then she just, you know, just ripped out both tires. And I feel sorry for Danny sometimes. I know Danny, he's such a great guy, and he's a good husband and a great father. And I, I was there, and Danny comes down, and she says, and this is Jamie, you gotta, and this is part of her charm. This is what you love about her. He comes down, and he says, obviously, we know what she did. She cut the short corner too short, blew out both sides of her tires, and there she is, car sitting like this, two flat tires on this side. Danny says, Jamie, what did you do? Jamie says, Danny... I don't know. I just need two new tires. <laughs> she, she was driving home one night, an afternoon. Sees strange people parked out on the street. Automatically thinks they're breaking into her house. So she drives around the block three or four times watching this car. Looks back to watch for them, see what they're doing, runs into a light pole, tears off her rearview mirror, tears off her thing on the running board on a, on a deal, and I think it was about a week later in Sunday school, it was either Macy or Kinsey, they were telling a story of, of Lot's wife, and they said Lot's wife 
looked around and turned into a pillar of salt, and Macy raised her hand and said, that ain't nothing. My mom looked around and turned into a light pole. So, <clears throat> My kids give me a tough time as I do them. And we as a church, we, we, we have a good time and laugh at each other when we see uh, us do something funny or even dumb sometimes. And I'll make the first tell you, I do some of the dumbest things on the planet. But I understand all geniuses have a downside in their social character. <clears throat> me and Will go at it all the time. I pick on Nikki Halliburton all the time. She picks on me. I mean, if I don't, I, I mean, I, that's one of the truest signs that I really like you. But I can dish it out, but I can take it. And I do some dumb things. I told some people a while back, where I love when volleyball season or softball season, we go over to Jason's Deli. I love going out there because we all can just sit around together and just all be together. And I tell you, I eat and I really love just walking around table to table, listening to you guys. Birthday, Zach makes a fool out of himself getting up there and singing happy birthday, which they put a big division down the wall now. Did you see it over there? You got to sing it on both sides of the wall this time. And, and I just love going around and put my arms around you guys and say, boy, I really love you. Good time. And I, and I was there last year, you know, after volleyball one night walking around and I come up and put my arm around. And I said, I really love you guys. I looked down at what two people wasn't part of our church. <laughs> I do some really dumb things. I hate Starbucks coffee. It doesn't, it's just too strong. And, I, and I'll tell you something now. Iced coffee's for sissies. Real men drink hot coffee. And, you know, my wife likes Starbucks, and that's fine. She likes to get the stuff there. But they came out with a blonde blend, which is a kind of a mellow blend. And I really like that. And I walked into Starbucks, you know, again, I walked into Starbucks, it's been several months ago, walked in there, place was lined up, I was there, and the lady says, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'd like a large hot blonde. <laughs> blend. <sighs> Guy behind me says, I have one of those too, you know. <laughs> I think life is too short to get so upset. When much of it is so funny. God has a sense of humor. Just look in the mirror. <laughs> you know, I grew up, you know, our world is so uptight today. I grew up in the 50s and the 60s when we told Polak jokes. <laughs> People from Poland. I don't know how that ever started. But Polak jokes were the thing. How many Polaks does it take to change the light bulb? One to hold it and three to turn the ladder. I mean, you know, things like that, you know. <laughs> Blonde jokes. Now, blondes are supposed to have more fun. So every woman wants to be a blonde. But you know what? We're, in, we're just overrun with, with blondes are supposed to be dumb. And they tell jokes about it. Blondes aren't dumb. But I'll tell you where that started. And maybe you don't even know this. The blonde, dumb, blonde movement started with two of the dumbest blondes that ever walked the planet. Marilyn Monroe and James Mansfield, who lived back in the 50s. They're both dead. One got killed in a car wreck. The other one got killed by JFK. I mean, by an accidental overdose. But they were the dumbest people on the planet. And yet, that's where it all originated from. You got guy jokes, you know. Nice suit. 
Too bad they didn't have it on your side. You know, things like that. I've heard preachers get up and introduce another preacher that was kind of overweight. And they always said, you always know brother so-and-so is on a level. He got the bubble in the middle. And see, things like that. <laughs> Bald jokes. Well, they don't car charge me for cutting my hair at the barbershop. They charge me for looking for it. I mean, all kinds of things like that. I had a girl one time years ago in my college class. And uh, we had a program where we took missionaries out to buy them gifts when they were home on deposition, deposition and a deputation. And uh, we, <laughs> some of them were in deposition too. But anyway, we, we went to this mall, a big mall. Well, I'll tell you where it was. It was over here at the old uh, Belden Village Mall, which was years and years and years ago. And that was the big mall back then. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I, that's the wrong one. What was it called? Bannister Mall, Bannister Mall, yeah. Belton Village is back in Ohio. That's a big mall, too. So we're all, we're all getting organized, okay? We're all getting ready to go. And I got about 20 or 30 people, and I take them over to the big map that they all have there, you know, at the mall. And I'm saying, okay, you take this group, you take this group, and we'll meet back here for lunch in, in two hours. And this girl is studying this thing. And I said, honey, I said, you, you okay? And, she, and right on the map, it had this big red thing that says, you are here. And she looked at me with big eyes and she says, how do they know that? <laughs> Don't take yourself too seriously, folks. There's a lot of funny things in life. I, I got a book. I love, I love when I go to, I love going to old seminar, cemeteries and, and reading the tombstones. Seminaries too, they're one of the same. But I love going to old, I used to work down uh, uh, South Paola and uh, Oshawatomie uh, is right below that. And that's where uh, uh, um, John uh, Brown was and all that area and all that stuff during the Civil War. And there's a really old graveyard down there. And I love just walking through and reading the inscription. You can tell many times when a person was saved by, by what they put on that. It's incredible. And I'll never forget down there, I, I, I saw a woman had written on her husband's tombstone. And he died back in the 20s or the 30s. And down there underneath in flowery script was a little saying, To follow you, I'm not content. For I am not sure which way you went. You know, right on the tombstone. And I thought, I like that. I like that. I liked it so much, I bought a book. And the book was pictures of the most funniest tombstones in America. And uh, it's a great book. And the, the one that won the prize, the funniest one, was by a cowboy. His name was Russell J. Larson from Logan, Utah. And on his tombstone, He's got at the top five rules for men to follow for a happy life. And then they're listed, five. Rule number one, he says, it's, it's important to have a woman who helps at home, cooks, and keeps the house clean. Rule number two, right under it, it's important to have a woman who can make you laugh. Right under that one, rule number three, it's important to have a woman who can, you can trust and won't lie to you. Right under that, rule number four. It's important for a woman to have passion and want to spend time with you. Right under that, the last rule, number five. And it's very, very, very important that these four women never meet or you're going to wind up dead like me. <laughs> that is classic. 
love that book. Old boy said one time, living down south to his friend, he hadn't seen him for years. He says, now what kind of, what kind of woman did you all marry? And his buddy said, oh, my wife has turned into an angel. He says, oh man, you're so lucky, mine's still alive. <laughs> I, I was with a group of preachers one time. And they were walking out to their car after the service. And uh, the guy had just preached on uh, Abraham and Sarah and how Sarah called him Lord. And they were talking and laughing about their wives, you know, and all that stuff. And the one preacher said, you guys can laugh all you want. My wife absolutely worships me. And the guy said, come on. He said, no, I'm telling you, my wife absolutely worships the ground that I walk on. One of the preachers says, how's that? He says, three times a day, she brings me a burnt offering. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. (laughs) And on and on it would go. But in spite of all that, not funny stuff about women. You know, a good woman is one of the best things that could ever happen to a man. A good one. Yeah, yeah. If you want to sing a hymn right now, redeemed would be really well. Now, and I want to tell you, there are some bad women out there. Not very often, but every once in a while you get one that comes to here. And, and you women always rat her out, boy. I mean, you do. I mean, uh, us goofy guys will say, oh, yeah, she's really nice. Oh, I'm just telling you. <laughs> I can see you've all had that. I'm just telling you. <laughs> they don't last very long around here. But that verse says every wise woman buildeth her house. And there's some really wise women in the Bible. Did you ever notice that? You got Mary, Mary and Martha. Mary wasn't too hot. Uh, Martha wasn't too hot, but Mary was. You got Ruth and Naomi. You got the Shumanite back there. Abigail's a good one. And I've told you this before. When you get into the New Testament, when Christ shows up, there wasn't ever one woman who ever rejected him. I mean, it's a, it's a great study. And uh, that verse says that every wise woman buildeth her house. And I want to take some time and talk to you about this woman. I want to talk to you about from a doctrinal aspect, and then I'm going to talk about an inspirational aspect uh, uh, to the verse. Uh, the key ingredients will always kind of lay out a great study for us. And uh, in, in Proverbs, the context of these two women, or the contrast of these two women, will come out in Proverbs chapter 31. And uh, in chapter 31, you have the woman that he's talking about that is a wise woman. And it's called the virtuous woman. She's called a virtuous woman. And this will be the end result of the word of God in a woman's life that makes her a good woman. It will also be the end result when we get into the doctrinal aspect of a, of a Christian who's the bride of Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. This chapter forms a really good model for uh, every wife, every mother. And every child of God that's sitting here, whether you're male or you're female, because whether you are or you're not, you're still the bride of Christ. And it's important to understand that. I personally can't wait till we get to chapter 31 in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Probably some of you are that way too, probably not for the same reason. Uh, But uh, I I can't get there because I want to lay it out. That's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Some of you just want me to be through with it. But it's it's a great chapter. But today I want to just take a quick look 
at 10 characteristics of a wise woman. We're going to look at the inspirational first. And then uh, we're going to look at the 10 characteristics of a, of a wise New Testament Christian, the bride of Christ, doctrinal aspect of it. And uh, we're going to talk about the, the wife first, the inspirational. Now, verse 10 says, who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies. Most husbands never see the tremendous value of the wives that they have. And uh, most of them never tell them that, never, never express to them. It's completely oblivious to them. And, uh, you know, uh, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22 says, He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. And, uh, you know, in Proverbs, in the Song of Solomon's, uh, she's likened to a black pearl. And a black pearl is so rare. Solomon had a thousand wives, and out of all of those thousand wives and concubines, he only found one that had the virtue. That's pretty amazing. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 46, I know it's talking about the church there, but the application is the same. She's called the pearl of great price. A woman who is a wise woman, who builds her house on the things of God, is invaluable. Thursday night, we talked about Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 29, the five different aspects of, of, a, of a husband understanding his wife. We talked about what it means to sanctify her, to cleanse her, to wash her, to nourish her. But then the last one was to cherish her. See the value in what you have. Let her know how valuable she is to you and to your family. Now, let's look, work our way through these and look at verse 10 here again. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? Virtue, as defined in the Bible, will be defined in Luke chapter 6, verse 19. Here you have a story where Jesus is among the multitudes and uh, uh, a woman reaches in the crowd and touches him and she has an infirmity and instantly she's healed. And the Bible says he didn't know who did it because of the crowd, but he knows, the Bible says, that somebody touched him and got healed because the Bible says virtue went out of him. That's a definitive passage on virtue in the Bible. Virtue will be the spiritual strength and truth that you give to your family as they grow and mature. Give out what God has given you. And it needs to be refilled on a daily basis. Moms are great at this. Good ones. A good mother will be the greatest example of self-sacrifice that her children will ever see. Now, I know that the husband's the head of the home. I get all of that. But while he's out working and doing his deal, uh, and when they have a good union together of understanding uh, how it all works, that mother is there for the early years. And what that child sees in her is the key where that child is going to go. She gives her family, to her family, till uh, she's about ready to drop. And it wears her out. That's virtue. What goes out of her, the goodness, the strength, when she takes and just gives constantly to her family and to her children. The second thing in verse 13 is two great key words. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. Two great words. <clears throat> Two character traits that I look for <clears throat> in anybody <clears throat> that is going to be, I think, good for the ministry. Somebody who seeks and then somebody who is willing. And it says that she seeks wool and she seeks flax. Flax is what they take. It's a, it's a kind of a, a Middle East uh, plant that they made thread from. 
And they would take the flax and they would beat it and strip it down and whatever they do, and they would get thread from it that they could make things. The wool here comes from a sheep or a lamb. So what you have is a mother who's wise and when she builds something with the thread, she makes something with her ability to sew. She makes things built on a sacrifice, the wool. She's got wisdom. She's got wisdom. In Genesis chapter 24, when uh, Isaac wants a bride and Abraham sends out his servant to find Rebekah, the Bible says that when he finds her, he's seeking for somebody to serve and somebody to be willing. And when he finds her, he finds her right there at the well, picture of the Word of God, passing out water. It's incredible. A good woman will be on the lookout for opportunities uh, and, 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 and seek it out. And then a good woman will be willing to do what God has showed her to do to make her family better. And literally... Our church is filled with women like that, and what a blessing it is. What a blessing it is. Uh, Verse 14, food from afar. She is like the merchant ship. She bringeth her food from afar. She knows what she has, the substance of spiritual food for her family. And from a spiritual aspect, she's a great cook. She can cook up some great devotions for her children. She can cook up some great discipleship lessons for her family. You ever notice that the, and this is not by my design, I wish I could say it was, but I'd be lying to you. When we give you verses that you go to work on to try to help you with your problems, you ever notice they're on little three-by-five cards? You know what those three-by-five cards really are? They're recipe cards. They were designed for somebody to write recipes of something you're going to cook. And what you do when you put the Word of God on those cards and you put them into your heart, you're building a recipe for life for your family. And women, moms, they build their house different ways. Some women are great cooks. Boy, they can cook up a storm with food. Some women can cook up strife and drama and all kinds of issues and problems. There's even some women who really are good at cooking up meth and doing all the drug scene. But some women can really cook up the Word of God. The recipes for life that they get into that Bible and prepare because she knows that she's bringing her food to her family from afar. The Word of God. Verse 15, she rises also while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. She gets up long before the rest of her family. She prepares their day, not just her day. She's a preparer. She's proactive. She's always looking ahead. She understands. She's not lazy. She's up in the morning with the rising sun. A good wife, a good woman will prepare the day for her family, for her kids. And you know as well as I do, ladies, you've got kids. Everything in the world can go wrong with your kids in the morning. You get them up for school, they don't want to go to school. You get them up for school, I want to wear this. You get them up for school... I'm tired today. You get them up for school, she's got my shoes. She's got my jacket, brother or sister. They got this, they got that. There's a thousand things that goes wrong with kids in the morning. She's prepared for that. She always wants to make their day the best at her own expense. 
When she doesn't feel good, she can't stay in bed. She still gets up and takes care of those kids. When she's having a bad time or she's struggling with her own things, most of the time her kids never know it because she prepares. She's that kind of woman. It's never about her. I think of my mom when I was just a little guy growing up, and we lived back in a day when most of you, you guys don't, some of the older ones were in, but we didn't, now you just turn the thermostat on the wall, and you know, the gas furnace lights up, and it's cool in the summertime, and it's hot in the wintertime. We didn't have air conditioning back then, and we didn't have a thermostat. We had a coal furnace. And you look at some of the old houses around Kansas City, if you pay attention, right down under the front porch, you'll see a big steel door about 36 by 36. And most people don't know what they are. That was back in the old day. That's where the coal bin was. And my dad would, would every six or seven months, we'd order coal. And a big guy would come up with a big old coal truck, back up to our yard, put a thing down it, and open up that steel door. And we had a room down there, and he threw the coal down the slide and filled that room up. And we'd get two or three tons of coal twice a year. We had a coal furnace. And you had to go down and bank that fire. You had to build that fire. You had to know how to build it. My mom was great at banking that furnace, and boy, she'd get that thing hot going at night, you'd stay warm all night. She'd get up early in the morning before I was, we were ever out of bed, and she'd be down there pulling those ashes out, turning that thing, cranking that thing, putting coal in, getting it all fired up. When we'd get up from school, you know, we'd be cold, we'd be there, she'd set us, me anyhow, she'd sit me on that, that little chair there with a, over the radiator, and she'd put our clothes over on the other radiator on the backs of chairs to get them warm so we could put them on. That's what moms do. That's what moms do. She rises also while it is yet night, giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. Verse 16. She considereth the field and buyeth it with the fruit of her hand. She planteth a vineyard. Her whole world will be her family. Her whole world will literally be her family. She buys the field. That's her family. That shows you her commitment. She clears the field. Shows you her mission. And with her hand, she plants a vineyard. That's her vision. She has, a, she has a commitment to her family. She has a mission for her family. And she has a vision for her family. And uh, you know what? A faithful family that understands, uh, she, she realizes, she's a, she understands that concept of the third generation concept. Your kids uh, are the trees, the fruit bearing in your life that you plant. You plant them one at a time. And I, and I, I got to say this, too, the importance of, uh, and most people don't even understand this, the importance of, of grandmothers. Uh, I'm grandfather, but especially talking about women, grandmothers. Most people don't even know. We talked about that third generation last week and how important that is. And uh, probably most people never made the connection to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. That when Paul talked about Timothy and he marveled how great Timothy was. You know who he gave the credit to? The first one he gave it to was his grandmother, and then he gave it to his mother. And then it was Timothy. First generation, second generation, third generation. Two generations of mothers will be invaluable. Now, I know you can have grandmothers or mother, grandmothers who stick their nose in everybody's business. I got to say, my grandmother or my mother-in-law, Barb's mom, was probably one of the great, greatest mother-in-laws you could ever have. And I know we make mother-in-law jokes. I understand that. I understand that. But, you know, she was probably, she always stayed out of the kids' business. 
When there was problems in the family, she always just kept quiet about it. Sure, she prayed about it, but she never intermingled. She never caused problems. She never did. And you're going to find that when you have two generations of mothers, it'll be invaluable. Allowing the grandparents to, uh, to provide that, that first generation stability, that the kids see the first generation, the second generation, and then they understand they're part of the third generation. And there's actually kids, or kids who want to keep their grandkids from the par- grandparents. And I realize in some cases you need to, but many times they feel threatened by them, you know. And what a, what a bad way to look at it. You don't feel threatened by it. You realize that that's part of the process of stabilizing that whole concept once you, once you understand it. She considers the field and buyeth it. Then verse 17 says, She girdeth her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 14 talks about the whole armor of God. Talks about loins girt about with truth. Her strength will be the word of God, the truth that she has. And with God's truth, she strengthens her arms, what she does for God. With her arms, she holds her kids in the love of the Word of God. She holds her husband in the love of the Word of God. And she holds the book above all with her love for the Word of God. Psalms 18.34 says, He teaches my hands to war, so a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. We talk about our arm. We talk about an army. We talk about being armed, ready to defend the truth of God's word with her family. That's what mothers do. That's what a wise woman does when she builds her house. She lets nothing come into that family that's going to take away what she knows God wants to do. And there's some things out there that will hurt you. Verse 18. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good, her candle goeth not out by night. Oh, what a great what a great example. What a great verse. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. She has perception. She's able to perceive. She doesn't see things as they appear. She sees things as they really are. She doesn't look at her family and just see kids. She looks at her family and sees the generation of God's family ministering the word of God. It says, her candle goeth not out by night. She's always for her family will be the bright spot that makes it all okay. That's what they do. When little kids get scared of the dark, when they're little, you know what mom is? She's the nightlight that says it's okay. When they get into teenage years and they get scared of the dark, then she's the guiding light that walks them through their issues. And even when they're adults and they have to face many times issues and make decisions on life, that they're not sure of, and sometimes it, 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 it makes them afraid. She'll be the light of principles and wisdoms in their life to guide them. That cannot, that cannot just happen. That candle of hers, it just never goes out. It just never goes out. It's an incredible concept. Verse 20. She has... <coughs> she has... It says, she layeth her hands to the spindle, <clears throat> and her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, <clears throat> yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She has charity. First Corinthians chapter 13 <clears throat> talks about spiritual gifts, and most people never see 12, 13, and 14 as one continuous aspect. And in those three chapters, 
<coughs> you have spiritual gifts laid into three different categories. And it tells us that for you and me as a Christian, of all the gifts that somebody may desire, the greatest gift is the gift of charity. Charity is to others because it's real to your own family first. You have charity for others. You give unconditionally to others because you've given it to your own family first. She, she treats her kids. She teaches her kids to love God and give to others. I watch, I watch some of your kids to go out down there on, the, on Will's team and go out on Darren's team down along the river. And I watch how that your understanding of sending those kids out down there with teams like that, really, um, I cannot tell you what you were building in their lives. I watched those little kids down there, and while they're witnessing to somebody, they're over here actually praying for them. It's incredible. I watched them carry the tracks while they're the people are doing it. They're not big enough yet to say anything or do anything, but they just carry the tracks like they're carrying the gold from Fort Knox. That's incredible. That gives them an understanding of don't everything that they have. You know, a wise family with all the presents, all the presents that our kids get. It would be so remarkable for a mom and a dad to say, you know what? Look at all this you've got. I want you to give up one present that we give to somebody that doesn't have something. We got a lady down there. I believe her name is Laura. And Laura, I don't even know where she came from. She's down at 18th and Cherry. And she showed up down there by accident one day with a couple of her girls. And she had made up little bags for the homeless people down there. And she saw our people over there. And she came over and she started talking. She has been down there ever since. She called me on the phone a couple of weeks ago. I don't even know if this lady's saved or not. She called me a couple of weeks ago and she says, I want you to know, she says, I really appreciate you letting my kids come down there. And she says, my kids need to understand that they don't have to get it all themselves and they're out there. And she, those kids are out there. She brought three families with her last time she was down there. And they're coming to the party uh, next week up at Restart. Now, you ladies get all over her and get that family. It's incredible. But she understands. I don't even know where she goes to church or if she does. But she understands the value of teaching her family charity, unconditional giving to others. It's incredible. Verse 21 and 22. Not afraid when winter comes because it says she's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. And every family in time, winter will set in. There'll be some challenges that'll come up with your family. There'll be some issues that you'll have to deal with. Things that your kid will now have to face and deal with. Sometimes it'll be at school. Sometimes it'll be with their friends. Sometimes it's just peer pressure from others or the world. Maybe it's their first job when they get out there and they really get a taste of what the world is really like. But she, she's not worried, nor is she afraid. You know why? Because she has clothed her first and then her family second with the righteousness of God. She's gotten the flax, made the thread, and then she got the sacrificial wool off the lamb, and she made them clothes. The coverings of tapestry, purple and silk. I think this expression is that we talk about, I got you covered. 
Well, when it comes to the winter time that all families face, she's got her family covered. The cold won't affect her family. And then the verse 25, the tenth thing, before we switch gears here a minute. She has two great qualities of Christ in her life. Verse 25 says, strength and honor are her clothing. And she shall rejoice in time to come. Now, I want to say something to you. If all you get out of what you came this morning is what I'm about to say, it was worth getting out in the wet and the rain and making your way here today. Because the two great qualities of this woman is strength and honor. Moms, listen to me. Some of you ladies who will be moms down the line, listen to me. When you have the strength to stand for God with your family, i say it again. When you have the strength to stand for God with your family, and there will be times that you have to do that. There will be times that you have to shut things out. There will be times that you can't allow this to happen. And it takes strength to be able to do that. When you have the strength to stand for your family, mom, that strength will always bring honor to your family. That should be on every refrigerator of every mom that's saved in this world. Strength to stand for God with your family will always be bring honor to your family. And it says, and she shall rejoice in a time to come. Two aspects to that. The first one will be in this life. She'll rejoice when she sees that third generation complete the cycle. The second thing is in the next life when she'll rejoice at the judgment seat of Christ. When families gather together, arms around each other at the feet of the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the crowns get dumped out to the third generation of families who minister together. Incredible. Well, that's the inspirational. Now, let's look at the doctrinal for a moment. Let's look at this from a doctrinal aspect, and that's you and me. You may be a male today, but the Bible says uh, it does not appear what you shall be. You may be a male, but as far as Christ is concerned, you're his bride. You're a female. You're a virgin. You're the bride of Christ. So we can look at this from an aspect of how it applies for me as the bride of Christ building my own house. Not the home where I live, but my own body. We'll look at it in that sense now quickly here. The first thing was virtue. Again, verse 10. Growing up and getting the truth of God and then passing it on to others. I watch you older guys take the younger guys and bring them along. I watch you older ladies take the younger gals and bring them along. And I know we're still a young church, you know, and and when uh, our old crowd is in their 40s and their 50s, and for the most part. But I, I watch you. Virtue is the character of God that you have built in your own life, and now you'll spend a couple of hours a week, two or three days a week, giving it out. And I'll tell you, just as I talked about it in the last way, it'll wear you out. 
It's Luke 6, 19. You give of what you have and you get tired. And you need to be refilled or renewed every day. Filling of the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 4, 23. Renew the spirit of your mind. Second thing. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. For all of us, especially in the church, the opportunities to let God use you are all around you. There's no reason for anybody here to say, I I don't know what to do for God. Because it's all around you. It's simply the fact that somebody will not seek and they're not willing. There's something for everybody. Seek it out, then be willing to let God use you. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says, God seeks and saves that which is lost. You and I, after we become a saved Christian, we don't seek and save. We seek and we serve. We look for the places to do what God has called us to do and saved us for, but we have to be willing. Verse 14, she's like a merchant ship. She bringeth her food from afar. Food from afar. Oh, I think back to Exodus chapter 16, that great chapter on the manna from heaven when the nation of Israel was out in the wilderness of sin and there was no food and there was no water. Oh, what a picture is that of my life in this world. Nothing sustains me. The water's no good. The food's no good. And they would have perished in the wilderness of sin if God would not have supernaturally brought the manna down from heaven. And for you and for me, we would have died in this old world if God would have not brought down the food from afar. I, I think of John chapter 4, that great story at the woman at the well. And uh, they have the natural water from Jacob's well that she had come there every day of her life to get water from. And she kept coming back. What a picture that is of the thing that this old world won't satisfy you. And then one day she met the Lord Jesus Christ at that well. And the Lord says, you know what, sweetheart, the water I got to give you will spring into everlasting life and you'll never thirst again because his food was from afar. You know, I, I think that's probably one of the greatest stories in the Bible. Most people never see the connection. Back in Genesis chapter 29, you have the same well. It was Jacob's well. And when John Jesus shows up in John chapter 4, hundreds of years later, He's sitting on the same well than Genesis chapter 29. And the story is back there that there's a, there's a well there, but there's a big stone uh, on that well. And the Bible, they, they go back there and they get talking and they says, we're not going to remove that stone till all the three flocks of sheep have gathered together. And it clearly tells you that there's three flocks of sheep that have to come together before they're going to water all of them. When all those come together, they move that stone and they give the water to those three flocks of sheep. Some a thousand years later, at the same well, the stone cut without hands is sitting on the same well. And he now, because of the fact that who he is, the stone is gone, the well's there, and now he gives water to the three flocks of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. He waters them. Oh, incredible. 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 You know, I love the Word of God. I love it most of all, I do believe, 
more than what it's done for me, more than what it could do for you, more what it's made me. But I, I love it first and foremost because it's the only thing that I possess that is not of this world. Everything else I own, the fingerprints, the DNA of the world is all over it. When it comes to my Bible and the food that God gave me from afar, that is the only thing in my life that I have that is not of this world. You know, I've come to the point in my life and all my life I've studied manuscript evidence. I've studied translations. I've studied the lines. And, you know, I, if somebody messes with me on the Bible, I'll, you know, they'll, it'll be the last thing they ever wish they did. I get that. I understand that. But to me, it's much more than that. I didn't study it for that reason. That just kind of happened. And I really don't care what a person believes. But when somebody attacks me, you declare war, we'll go to war. But that's not the reason for me. It's much more than that. All those years I studied all those years I looked at the two lines. All those years I broke down the book of Acts and I saw the churches and the Christian ends all down through history. And I saw all through those years, I simply saw the hand of God who worked to get all history lined up so I'd have a copy of his word that he could give me his food from afar. That's what it is for me, man. That's what it is for me. Verse 15. She rises also while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. Wow, night, the great church age in the Bible. A reference to me as his bride getting up early to get what God has for me, not only for me and my family, but for my people. It's a picture of you and the time you spend studying, laboring in the word of God because you're going to give it to somebody else and do something with it. The church, your family, and then the people that you work with. He says in verse 16, She considereth the field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hand, she planteth a vineyard. One of the greatest verses in all the Bible and why I'm here with you today. Matthew chapter 13 says, The field's the world. I've told you this before. Christ bought the world. But then he asked me to buy a little field within this world. He asked me to look around in the world that he paid for and simply say, Bob, I'm not asking you to buy the whole world. I'm just asking you to consider a field in this world. But when you buy it, I want you to buy it with all the intensity, all the sacrifice, all the, all the tenacity that I bought the whole world with. And my field today and my little piece of the action, my little piece of the field of the great world that he bought is right here in Kansas City. And I bought it with the same determination all the shame and energy level that he had when he bought the world. And today, Old Pass Baptist Church is our field in Kansas City. We buy it. We realize we're committed to it. This is our work. It isn't somebody else's. We're dedicated to it. We understand that God saved us, brought us here, could have sent you anywhere on the planet. He saved you. He brought you here. You got your Bible learned here. You got taught here. He gave you ministry here. This is your field. She considered the field and by it with the hands she planted the vineyard. We started with 12 people. And I've said it many, many times. You build a church one person at a time, one couple at a time, one family at a time. You all didn't come in the week after we started our church. One of you came here, you came here, you came, then you came, 
You showed up on Thursday night. You came here. One by one, we planted a field. And now we got a vineyard. And now the vineyard is bringing forth fruit. It's just that simple. Verse 17. She girdeth her loins with strength and strengthen her arms. The girding of our loins. Again, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. The strength of a man will always be in his loins. Loins means so much in the Bible. It means a man's strength. It also means a man's future family. When it talked about in your loins or future generations, you'll find. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 gives us a clear example of what the strength of a man is and where it's found. And what loins really mean in the Bible for a man's strength, where it says, wherefore gird up the loins of your mind. Your strength as a Christian is in your mind. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There lies your strength. Job said, Job 38.3, gird up your loins now like a man and answer thou me. Our strength will simply be our mind and what we've went it go and what we've done with it. Verse 18, she perceiveth that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth not out by night. Simply <clears throat> seeing situations as they are, not as people try to portray them to be. Our perception. The book of Proverbs and its contrast. A wise man versus a foolish man. Learning how to get discernment, discretion, perspective. Key elements that only come from the merchandise of the Word of God. Your candle. Proverbs 20, verse 27 says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Never lose that fellowship and relationship of, of walking in the light as he is in the light. The candle, when you got saved, that candle got lit inside of you, and that candle will never go out. You may cover it up, you may hide it, you may put a bushel basket over it, as the Bible says in Matthew, but it'll never go out. And it seeks down inside your very soul. Verse 19 and 20. <clears throat> she layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, yea, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Boy, what a great verse for this church and for almost everybody in this church where it says, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet. That's what we do here. You get the fat on Thursday night and Sunday morning. You get the sweet. You get everything you could ever want. You got the people ministry. You got everything. Got the singles ministry. Got the parish stuff. You got everything you need. You talk about eat the fat and drink the sweet. But then what do you do with that? Then he says, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. There's people out there that have nothing today, and look what we have. Look what God's given us. People get so sat and satisfied with things in the Word of God that they get critical of things. They get an attitude about things. Happens all the time. They get spoiled with the Word of God. They think because they get so much, it's like, a, it's like a person who's got millions and millions and millions of dollars. You know what he does? He loses touch with a guy who doesn't have anything. And when you have billions and billions and billions of dollars spiritually right at your fingertips, it's easy to lose touch with those who don't have anything. That's the key. Giving to the poor. Charity, again, for the ones in this world who have nothing. Helping others. No ulterior motive. Just doing what God 
has done for us. I think one of my greatest heroes of the last of the Philadelphian church age was a guy who is totally misrepresented today, but it would be General William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army that you see today is nothing compared to the original Salvation Army. If William Booth was alive today, he'd have a heart attack and die before he'd walk past the first ashtray in in the Salvation Army churches. And it was an incredible thing. He was born in 1829. He died in 1912. And his Salvation Army, we think that was in America. It was in England. That's where it started. And his greatest book, he wrote a number of things, but the greatest book that I think he ever wrote and really changed, changed the whole face of England. In fact, King Edward VII actually invited him to his coronation based on the work that he had done. And his work was based on one thing that he wrote. And he wrote many, many things. And the name of the book was In Darkest England and the Way Out. In Darkest England. Boy, England was dark at the time. And then he said, here's the way out. And the way out was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Boy, if America ever needed to read a book, it needs to be that book. You know, his final final moments, every Christmas Eve, he would address all of the Salvation Army people. They'd plug in radios around the world, and he would address everybody in his organization, give them some Christmas message, encourage them. But he was ill in health. In fact, he died. He died shortly after that Christmas Eve. And he was in the hospital. He was very weak. And yet they, he wanted to give a message to all of his followers in the glorious back then Salvation Army, which was a true Salvation Army. So they got, the, got all the microphones and plucked up everywhere and everybody around the world that was part of his group waited for their general to give them this inspiring message And he was so weak and so tired and so wore out that his message only contained one word. And shortly thereafter, he died. As they held the microphone down and they said, now prepare to hear from our, our, our general, William Booth. The only word that he uttered was the word others. Others. That's all really what it's about, folks. For you and for me. For the word of God, for this church, for what God does with us. It's just about one thing. It's about others. Are we willing to take and give to those who have nothing? Are we willing to eat the fat and drink the sweet, but we forget about sending portion to those whom nothing is prepared? That's the real key. Then he says in verse 21 and 22, she is not afraid of the snow for her household for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She make herself coverings and tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Not afraid of the snow. You know, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 21, one of the greatest messages that I, I ever heard in my life, probably changed my life more than <clears throat> any other message I ever heard. He tells young Timothy, do thy diligence to come before winter. You know, this mom here, this woman, 
whether it's a mother who builds her own family or it's you and me as the bride of Christ, she knows that there's going to come a time in her life that she needs to get some things done before wintertime sets in. Man's life is like the four seasons. You have a spring when you're born. You have a summer when you're now moving to adulthood. You have fall when you're now fully adult, moving in, and then wintertime comes into your life. Most people never stop and think about that, but apple trees don't bear apples in winter. Not in February. Not here, anyhow. You realize that she knows that there's some things that need to get done before the wintertime of her life, and she can't do those things anymore. Hey, there'll be a time that will come where you'll lose the influence over your kids. You better get some things done before winter gets here. The time that, that you'll lose the relationship in your marriage. So you better get some things done before that winter time gets here. There'll be a time when you'll not be able to say some things to some people that you need to say right now. So you better say them before winter time sets in. I've known, I don't know how many people that lost a mother, lost a father, had problems with them, maybe didn't speak to them for a long, and that person dies. And the rest of their life, they wail and wail and cry. I've seen them stand by that graveside and tell their daddy, I love you, daddy. I love you, mommy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Too late. Winter time. There's some things you got to get done before winter gets here in your life. Some things you better say to some people before you can't say them anymore or they can't hear it anymore. And there's a time that you'll not be able to do the work for God. And your race will come to an end. And the winter time of your life will set in. But you see, don't be afraid of the snow. Because she's prepared, and you should be prepared, that you're doing those things now before winter gets here. Verse 25 and verse 26. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in a time to come. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and her tongue is the law of kindness. Two great qualities, again, we see that the mother had that you and I should have as Christians, strength and honor. In a Christian's life, strength will be the power of God under control in your life. Simply strength to stand for God now. Courage to stay with the Word of God now. Not to compromise when you're tempted to. Stay within those laws of God like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Strength now to make the hard decisions. Lose some things in your life that you have to lose. Maybe you lose some friends. Maybe you lose this. Maybe you lose that. Sometimes you have to make those hard decisions. Strength now. Being able to stand now. Strength and endurance now will always lead to honor later at the judgment seat of Christ. Then the last part of verse 1. But the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. Hands in the Bible is what you do. Two kinds of women, two kinds of Christians. One will build her house. One will destroy her house. One will build you up. The other one will tear you down. Seen moms single, divorced, or remarried, drag the kids through the mud of their lifestyle and let those kids be exposed of guys sleeping over and guys this and guys that, or women this and women that, living a lifestyle that is totally outside the Word of God and dragging their kids through the mud of their lifestyle and then actually standing there, scratching their head, asking themselves, how did that happen? Listen, kids at 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 will absorb everything you do. And then at 18, 19, and 20, 
they'll do everything you do. A woman will build her family with her husband, with her hands, or she'll build it and destroy it with her hands. And the Christian, bride of Christ, will build his house, his body, or he'll, he'll use the very hands that God gave him to do the work of God to destroy it. One inspirational, one doctrinal. Verse 2, and I'm done. He that walketh in his uprightness feareth the Lord, but he that is perverse in his ways despises him. Now, I want you to listen to something here, and I'm done. This is so simple. Walketh in his uprightness. Doesn't mean you have any uprightness yourself, any self-righteousness. You don't. But rather you realize that you have, have to have a moral compass in your life. And that moral compass is a, is a righteous standard that you yourself must walk in. You can't walk in somebody else's forever. You have to, in time, develop your own compass that points the direction of north. You can't use somebody else's all your life. Your own righteousness, your walk based on your walk with God. And then the last part of that verse, boy, it's a real killer. But he that is perverse in his ways despises him. It says that there's a natural spiritual separation between a man that is right with God and a man who's not. That doesn't sound like it's a very profound statement, but it really is. That Bible says that when you walk, you're on your uprightness. The man who is perverse is going to despise you. There's a real separation God puts between a man who does what's right and when a man does it. And you know what? And you can see it. If you've got any kind of perception at all, you can see it the moment a person begins to go backwards from God. It's so apparent and you can see it in everything that they do. And it says that, a, it says that there is a natural spiritual separation between a man right with God and a man who's not. And yet, and this is what I'm telling you, this is why you need to have a spiritual moral compass. This is why you need to have strength and honor. And yet you'll see God's people all the time getting hooked up with the perverse crowd in spite of that spiritual separation. Now, how does that happen? When God puts a natural separation between the perverse man who hates uprightness and the man who's upright, who fears the Lord, how in the world does that natural separation get breached? Well, it's real simple. Bible makes it real clear that a perverse man despises the things of God and he will despise your righteous walk with God. So he won't rise up to your level. No, you have to make a conscious choice to go down to his level. And when you do, when you do that, it's simply leaving God and all that he's done for you for the perverse world. You bridge that natural separation by your choosing. The unsaved world will never come to you. You always go to them. As long as you have the righteous moral compass, you'll never go to them. They can't get to you. But it's us who lose our moral direction and our moral courage who always go to them. Simply leaving God and all that he's done for you for the perverse world. The latest in church age, the old church with the word of God, 
simply moved down the philosophy and the tradition of men in the rudiments of the world. They didn't come to it. Church went to them. The world won't come to you. You'll always go to the world. And you do that because of the fact that you have no upright moral compass in your life that guides you. God's people going down to the level of perverseness and leaving the things of God. Just that simple. 